Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have today to be able to sing songs of praise to you, but also to sit under the teaching of your word. We ask that your scripture, which is breathed out by your spirit, would indeed convict us of our sin, but also stir our affections for you and show us some ways how we might be able to live our lives in obedience to you. I ask that your spirit would help me as I have the opportunity to teach your word to proclaim it faithfully and clearly. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My high school physics teacher assigned us a project. We had to construct a bridge out of balsa wood and glue to withstand whatever weight that our physics teacher threw at it. He split us into groups, and we would have two attempts. We have two attempts to build a bridge that would be able to withstand whatever weight that my physics teacher threw at it. I still remember the first day of testing. My group, we brought our bridge, and we saw the contraption that our physics teacher had built in order to test our bridge. The contraption resembled a clamp, what we called the jaws of death. You would put your bridge on the stand, and then he would place a wooden platform on top, and then he would add weights until either he ran out of weights or your bridge was crushed. I remember when we placed our bridge in that press, after he had put the third barbell of weights on top of our bridge, our bridge began to bow. And I thought to myself, our bridge isn't going to make it. And sure enough, when he placed that fourth barbell on top of our bridge, our bridge collapsed and splinters flew everywhere. We failed in our first attempt. So our team went back to the design board and we were thinking to ourselves, how can we actually build our bridge to be able to withstand whatever weight our physics teacher would throw at it? And so we thought to ourselves, we needed to reinforce the columns of our bridge and we needed to do it again. And so we rebuilt the bridge and we went on to our second attempt. Again, we placed our bridge in the jaws of death and I held my breath as my physics teacher once again put those weights on top of one another, one by one. Eventually, he ran out of weights, and I breathed out a sigh of relief. Our bridge has succeeded to withstand whatever weight that our physics teacher threw at it. You know, life is oftentimes like my bridge project. Life throws us all types of hardships and trials. And success depends on whether or not we're able to withstand those hardships, those, the weight of life. Now, by weight of life and by hardship, sometimes it may even be suffering. And that success depends on our ability to be able to withstand hardship. I mean, a rocket ship uh, launches successfully when the rocket is able to withstand whatever vibrations that that rocket engine gives off so that it could escape the pull of gravity. A marriage succeeds when a husband and wife are able to weather the storms of financial difficulty, intense arguments, or even a loss of a child. That they're able to withstand the hardships of life and the marriage succeeds. 
A student succeeds in their classes when they're able to withstand the academic rigors, staying up late to study, reading textbooks, solving problems, writing essays, and that when they're able to withstand those hardships and difficulties of study, they succeed as a student. Young parents succeed when they're able to withstand the hardship of interrupted sleep, late night feedings, and possibly even regular diaper changes to care for their infant. Success depends on the ability to withstand hardship. Now, if a church succeeds, we would call it a flourishing church. Well, when does a church flourish? A church flourishes when it endures hardship to advance the gospel. The church may face ridicule, social alienation. It may face mockery and even possibly death. Yet the church flourishes when it remains committed to the advance of the gospel. That nothing deters it from its mission and from its task to share the salvation that is offered to people through Jesus Christ. That a church flourishes when it endures hardship to advance the gospel. Now, the Thessalonian church recorded in the New Testament it exemplifies a flourishing church. Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica after Roman authorities asked them to leave Philippi, and Paul and Silas spent a little bit of time at Thessalonica to establish a church. But shortly after, a mob forced them to leave. Now, Paul wrote a letter to the Thessalonians when he heard that the Thessalonian believers were suffering for the sake of the gospel. And this letter is found in the book that is titled First Thessalonians in our Bibles. So if you aren't turned there already, please turn there with me. First Thessalonians. So this morning, we're going to learn about a flourishing church that endures hardship to advance the gospel. We'll discuss three questions. First, why does a flourishing church need to endure hardship? And what does gospel ministry care about? And then, who does faithful gospel ministry reach? So again, why does a flourishing church need to endure hardship? And then we're going to talk about what does gospel ministry care about? And then who does faithful gospel ministry reach? So first question, why does a flourishing church need to endure hardship? Well, hardship oftentimes accompanies gospel work. When gospel work happens, hardship and suffering oftentimes follow it. You share the gospel with somebody, and they may reject it. Thanks, but no thanks. You share the gospel with someone else, they laugh in your face. When you share that you've decided to follow Jesus with your friends, they may say, you are just crazy, radical, ridiculous. And when some parents discover your faith in Christ, they may even disown you. Hardship oftentimes accompanies gospel work. The Thessalonians encountered similar type of ridicule when they shared the gospel with others. And sometimes it may have even escalated to violence. Just as that mob dragged Jason out of his house when they discovered that he was a believer, Unbelieving Thessalonians may have also mocked them when these new Thessalonian Christians refused to participate in the drunken orgies to their gods, that they endured ridicule and hardship 
for being believers and for sharing the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul may have received this news when he was in Athens, uh, that the church in Thessalonica experienced hardship for their faith. If Paul didn't intervene, he feared that the Thessalonians might think, it's not worth it to follow Jesus anymore. Because when we follow Christ, when we share about Jesus, only trials, sufferings, and hardship follow that profession of faith, and they may be tempted to depart from the faith. And Paul may have spent long hours praying for the Thessalonians in Athens as he waited for Silas and Timothy to arrive. And when the team had reunited, they decided to send Timothy to check on the Thessalonian church. Paul sent Timothy to remind the Thessalonians to endure hardship in gospel work. Now, why does Paul send Timothy? Well, Paul sends Timothy because of his record of faithfulness. Now, look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It says this, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Notice how Paul describes Timothy. He describes him as his brother. Paul reserves the term brother for those who work with Paul, those who have served with Paul. And then Paul goes on to describe Timothy as God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. That Timothy was known for sharing the gospel just as Paul did. And that Timothy and Paul oftentimes worked together to share the gospel with the lost. And this prompted Paul to send Timothy on his first mission to Thessalonica. Now, Paul sent Timothy with one task, preparation. Timothy prepared the Thessalonians to endure when hardship came. Verse 2 continues to say this, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Timothy worked to strengthen and to fortify the faith of the Thessalonians so that when hardships and afflictions came, the Thessalonians would be like a fortress reinforced with gospel truth in their walls to be able to withstand the hardships that they would face. Now, this lesson may have echoed something that Paul had already taught the Thessalonians because Paul had taught the Thessalonians to expect hardship. Verse 3 says, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. Now, why is it that Paul would teach the Thessalonians to expect hardship? Well, Paul may have thought of the teaching of Jesus. Jesus taught that no one is ever greater than the master. And if Jesus is our master and our teacher, then should not our lives as believers mimic his? I mean, after all, every student takes after their teacher. A young, aspiring sushi chef learns and trains under our master sushi chef. And then eventually, this young sushi chef would be able to hopefully make sushi that tastes like his teacher's. Or a violin teacher oftentimes passes off her knowledge to a young prodigy. So when that young prodigy plays a piece from Bach, it resembles her teacher. Now, if Jesus experienced the scorn of religious leaders, 
that should not also his followers experience scorn from religious leaders? If temple soldiers arrested Jesus for his message, should not Jesus' followers also expect to be arrested for the same message? If Jesus laid down his life for the sake of others, should not be believers be expected to do the same? If Jesus experienced hardship and persecution because people did not know God the Father, then how can we expect that our lives would be different? Because we will probably experience the same type of treatment for the same reason. Now, this affliction and hardship that the Thessalonians experienced caused Paul to worry. If the Thessalonians failed to withstand hardship, then the ministry of Paul would have failed. Uh, look with me at verse 5. It says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, what was the temptation? Well, Paul believed that the tempter, a.k.a. Satan, the adversary, worked to convince the Thessalonians it's not worth it to believe in Christ. It's not worth the trouble. It's not worth the hardship. It's not worth the suffering. Why would anyone want to follow God if it means having to undergo all this hardship? And the Thessalonians struggled with whether or not they should remain committed to God. Now, what would it mean if Paul's ministry had failed? It meant that all the work that Paul and Silas went in to producing a church would have failed. That there would no longer be a church in Thessalonica. No one would be able to serve as a witness for the gospel in that city. And so, this prompted Paul to send Timothy to strengthen the faith of the Thessalonian believers. So what does it mean for us then? If we recognize that hardship oftentimes accompanies gospel work, then we have to prepare ourselves for the hardships that may come. That a believer, by definition, sets him or herself apart from the world. That we believe that we live in a broken world that only Jesus Christ can restore. And we proclaim that message. But it makes it, for us, a difficult place. Because people will not believe. So prepare yourself for misunderstanding as you teach the gospel to others. Unbelievers may label you as intolerant as you define sin, because nowadays everyone defines right and wrong according to their own eyes. They do not believe in moral absolutes. People will call you moralistic because they believe that you're living this moral life so that you can please God, that by this moral regimen that you follow, you might be able to enter into the presence of God. But we don't live a moralistic lifestyle per se because we recognize that no matter what type of good we do, it would never make us worthy of God. That only through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us can we actually have a relationship with God. And that we live morally not because we want to be saved. We live morally because we have been saved through Christ. And the gospel speaks against that type of moralism that is able to earn you standing before God, but it also speaks against relativism, that there is no right or wrong, because there is. And people may misunderstand the gospel. And prepare yourself also not just for misunderstanding, but also for ridicule when you explain the gospel. Some people will find the gospel to be ridiculous 
because of what we believe. I mean, think about it. We believe in a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago, and he claimed to be God. And not only did he claim to be God, but he also died on a cross for the sins of humanity, past, present, and future, so that all who might believe in him would have eternal life. And did I also mention he rose from the dead three days later? After he died, he rose back to life. And we also believe that he ascended into heaven and he's going to come back to establish a kingdom. If you think about it, it sounds incredibly silly. Yet we find it to be true because the Spirit helped us make sense of that message. Because for those who do not have the Spirit, the message of the gospel will sound like folly. It sounds like fantasy. But to those whom the Spirit speaks, they'll see that the gospel indeed leads to life. We endure hardship when we do gospel work because we believe it's true. We enter into those awkward conversations because we believe that people will go to hell apart from Christ. A church flourishes only when its members endure the hardship that accompanies such gospel work. So let's move on to the second question. What does gospel work care about? What does gospel ministry care about? Well, gospel work cares about the spiritual well-being of people. That gospel work focuses on the spiritual health of individuals. Christians wonder, what is the spiritual state of this person? Are they lost? Are they saved? And if they're saved, then are they walking with the Lord? And if they're walking with the Lord, are they in a place of encouragement or discouragement? Is a believer living a life of obedience or are they living a life of disobedience? And if we engage in gospel work, we care about people. Gospel work cares about the spiritual well-being of people. Now, Paul cared for the Thessalonians because they represented his joy. Well, I mean, how did Paul care for the Thessalonians when they couldn't even see him? I mean, he was miles away in another city. Well, how do, peop- how do you know that people care about you even though they're miles away? I mean, some families during Christmas send you a Christmas card. And the Christmas card may contain a message expressing their greetings and also how much they miss you. When your boyfriend lives states away, well, how do you know he cares? He may send you a text that says he misses you, or he may even send you a gift like flowers. And Paul expressed his care and his concern by writing about his longing to see them. Paul longed to see the Thessalonians because he cared for them. Now look with me at verse 17. It says this. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. Now, the word torn away implies a stronger image than it conveys in the English. The Greek word used to describe this idea of torn away is associated with the feeling that parents receive when their children are torn away from them or for a child losing their parents. Imagine the shock I would feel if I heard or received a call that my mom had passed away. 
and to be with the Lord. It would wrench my soul. And Paul describes that separation from the Thessalonians as heart-wrenching and painful, just as a child discovers that his parents have passed or that parents have discovered that their child has passed. And Paul expresses this earnest desire to see them. I mean, he tried time and time again. Note that phrase in the text where it says, again and again. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul may have gone down to the port of Athens and tried to catch a boat in order to go back to Thessalonica. But every time he tried to find a spot on the boat, every spot was filled. Or maybe he tried to join a caravan to be able to make his way back up to Thessalonica, but then weather prevented him from going, and it just delayed the trip. Or maybe another ministry opportunity in another city required his attention so he couldn't return. That circumstances prevented Paul from returning to Thessalonica. And despite his inability to return, Paul thought of the Thessalonians. Now, to whom does Paul attribute this inability to return to Thessalonica? Who was blocking his path? Well, the text says that it was Satan. Look with me at verse 18. It says this, But Satan hindered us. Now, the word hinder here has a militaristic connotation of Roman military either tearing up roads or setting out blockades to prevent enemy movement. And Satan knew that if Paul returned to Thessalonica, then it would make it difficult for him to turn believers away from God. And so he used whatever forces that were at his disposal to hinder Paul from returning. But why did Paul care so much about the spiritual well-being of the Thessalonians? Why did he try so hard to return? Well, the spiritual well-being of the Thessalonians represented Paul's reward before Christ. Paul writes this in verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, Paul equates the Thessalonians with three words. The first word that shows up is hope. That Paul hopes that when Jesus Christ returns, that Paul will be in the presence of God with the Thessalonians. And then he talks about the Thessalonians being his joy. That Paul, as well as Silas and Timothy, would rejoice that the Thessalonians were present before Christ with them. And then we come to the third word, crown of boasting. This phrase probably invokes in our minds an idea of a golden diadem with jewels studded and inset in it. But that's not the image that Paul wants to conjure up in this phrase. Because when he thinks of the crown of boasting, he's actually thinking of a wreath that is awarded to an athlete who wins a sporting competition. That someone who has ran the race and won will receive this crown, this wreath, to demonstrate that he had accomplished this task. Now, the idea of reward or commendation may sound odd to our ears. I mean, after all, don't all believers receive eternal life? And shouldn't that be enough? Yet there's an idea of receiving commendation in the New Testament. I mean, for instance, we strive to be faithful to God so that we might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. 
I mean, and this commendation that we earn, we oftentimes don't recognize it. I mean, think about the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Jesus commends the sheep for their faithfulness, but the sheep ask Jesus, like, so when do we do these things? Now, they didn't even know that their actions would receive or commendation. Now think about a pre-COVID workday. You go to Starbucks to get your morning coffee, and you remember and you recognize it's been a long week for the office. Everybody wishes that they could have gotten a few more hours of sleep, but the project required everyone to work late hours, and you decide to get coffee for the whole team. And when the team sees you that morning come in with that coffee, they woot and they holler, and they celebrate the fact that you would have thought of them. Now, you run into your office or you run into your boss later that day, and he says to you, hey, thanks for bringing the coffee this morning. The team really appreciated it. Now, you didn't get the coffee to receive a good job, well done. You just thought it would be a nice thing to do, but you were commended for it. That's what it means to receive a commendation, a reward. And it's not so much as you're working for the reward, is that you're already doing it. And Paul cares for the well-being of the Thessalonians because Jesus would assess his ministry. Jesus would assess his ministry based upon who has Paul shepherded? With whom did Paul share the gospel with? Who did Paul correct when they started to walk astray? Who did Paul pray for? Jesus bases his assessment on the who of ministry rather than the what of ministry. And how did Paul care for people? Well, if Jesus bases his assessment on how Paul cared for people, then the same standard would apply to us because this is how Paul cared for people, by praying for them, for correcting them, teaching them. And that same assessment would be applied to us, that we need to care about the spiritual well-being of people. And this requires us to think about how do we actually gauge success in gospel work? How do we assess whether or not a ministry is flourishing? Well, oftentimes we use the wrong standards to measure a flourishing ministry. I mean, do we look to our attendance numbers? If the attendance numbers go up, then does that mean the ministry is flourishing? But if we look at the number more carefully, then we may discover that the bump in numbers is actually because there are believers from other churches who have decided to join ours. And then do we look at the size of our facility, that our ministry must be flourishing because our facility continues to grow? Yet when Jesus asks us to give an account for our ministry, will we say to them, say to him, wow, look how large a church building we built for you. I mean, think about the beautiful cathedrals in Europe that sit empty every single Sunday morning. I mean, do we look to the number of Sunday school courses that we offer? I mean, if we offer 10 classes on various topics, then does that make our ministry more successful? Uh, I mean, imagine the day when we are before Jesus. Will we say to him, Jesus, look at all the Sunday school courses that we were able to teach. I mean, do we pride ourselves also in how many books of the Bible that we teach in our small groups or in our gatherings? Will Jesus say, wow, it's amazing that you studied all 66 books of the Bible? I think not. I mean, God evaluates the success of gospel work by how we cared for people. 
Do we help the unbelievers that attend our church to understand the gospel? Do we pray for their salvation? Do we help believers in our midst grow in their love for God and love for neighbor? When a believer grieves the loss of a family member, do we sit and grieve with them? When a believer expresses doubt in faith, do we listen to their doubts and remind them of gospel truths? How do we use our facility to proclaim the gospel in our community? Do our Sunday school classes not only build one's knowledge, but also encourage greater obedience to God? Does what we learn change the way that we live? When we go to small groups, do our Bible studies challenge participants to examine their lives? Or do we just go to small group to have our spiritual conversation fix for the week? Do our small groups facilitate a space where people who are non-believers may hear the gospel and for those who are believers to receive exhortation to obey gospel truths? When we think of a flourishing ministry, the faces of people should flash in our mind. Let's go on to the third question. Who does gospel work reach? Well, faithful gospel work reaches all people. A flourishing church focuses on making Christ known to all types of people. It doesn't matter the ethnicity or the socioeconomic background. Faithful gospel work preaches the gospel to everyone. And Paul commends the Thessalonians for their work to reach all people in spite of the hardships. When the Thessalonians heard Paul preach the gospel for the first time in the synagogue, a light bulb went off in their minds. These God-fearing Gentiles and women of the city learned that they could have a relationship with God without having to follow the Jewish law. This message led many of them to place their faith in Christ and leave the synagogue to join the church. And these new believers began to share the gospel with others in the community. And Paul gives thanks for the work of the word of God in the Thessalonians. Paul writes this in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The spirit of God produced spiritual fruit in their lives, such as faith, love, and hope. They turned away from idols. It also led them to share the gospel with others. But hardship and suffering accompanied their ministry. Now, Paul equates the suffering of the Thessalonians to the Judean church. He writes this in verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now, the word Judea refers not just to the land of Judah in southern Palestine, but it refers to the whole region, including Galilee and Capernaum. And the ministry of the Thessalonians resembled the ministry of the church that began there. The Thessalonians, just as the Judean church experienced suffering, so also did the Thessalonians. And the Thessalonians preached the gospel to all peoples, and that also led to their suffering. Now look with me at the latter half of verse 14. It says this, For you suffered the same thing from your countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. 
so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Know how Paul describes the Jews and those who persecute the Thessalonian believers. They oppose mankind. And they also hinder Paul and the apostles from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So why did the Jews kill Jesus? Yes, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, but he also turned the religious system at that time upside down. Then instead of spending time with religious leaders, Jesus spent time preaching the gospel to the outcasts, to the common people. He offered salvation to the tax collector, the leper, the prostitute, the poor. He even commended the faith of Gentiles on occasion in his ministry. Now, everyone could have eternal life they believed in Jesus Christ. Then think about the ministry of the apostles. They continued that same work. And remember what threw the early church into crisis? It was the question, can the Gentiles be saved? Can those who are non-Jews receive the same salvation that Peter, James, and John received? And Jesus answered, yes. But then the question was, did these Gentile believers have to receive circumcision and follow the Old Testament law? And the church leaders at the Council of Jerusalem, they decided, no. Because as Christians, they were now under the new covenant in the Spirit. And this led to Paul's missionary journeys to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Yes, Paul always began his ministry in the synagogues of cities that he visited whenever possible. And often, the Gentile God-fearers responded first to his message. Why? The God-fearers, at first, could never be part of Abraham's family because they were not Jewish. But when they heard the gospel, they learned that they could be part of the family of God through the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this led many to profess faith in Christ. The inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God prompted jealousy among unbelieving Jews. And Paul cites this specific reason in 1 Thessalonians. And this is also what prompted the Jews from stopping Paul's ministry and stopping the apostles from sharing the gospel to the Gentiles. And this prompted the Jews in, the Thessal in Thessalonica to round up the Gentiles to form a mob to run Paul and company out of town. And what caused the hardship and suffering and persecution specifically among the Gentiles? They preached a message of salvation to all people. So what is the implication for us as a church? Well, we need to think about how can we work together as a church to reach all people? We should find ways to work together to reach all age groups at our church, whether they be children or youth or college students or young adults, families, retirees, we need to work together. We should also find ways to reach different socioeconomic classes. How can we partner with organizations in our city to reach the poor and economically depressed? Not only do we contribute our finances, but how do we contribute our time and our energy? We should think about how to reach people from all types of ethnic backgrounds. How can we as a church partner with other churches to reach the Spanish-speaking community, the Indian community, the Vietnamese community, or even the African-American community? How do we reach the internationals that are in our community? People who have come here either to study or to work who have not heard the gospel. 
How do we use our resources to reach the unreached in other parts of the world? And this might involve either praying for these unreached people groups, or for some, it may involve getting some training and going overseas to share the gospel with them. And for others of us, it may mean supporting them and praying for them as they go out. And a church flourishes when it's able to do that because it advances the gospel work. So what was the idea that we were talking about this morning? It's the idea that a church flourishes when it endures hardship to advance gospel work. May our church advance the work of our Savior to reach all peoples. May we remember that the focus of gospel work is the spiritual welfare of people. And that when we experience hardships associated with the advance of the gospel, may we endure. I mean, suffering and hardship line the path of a flourishing church. I mean, a Christian leader from Sri Lanka named Ajith Fernando writes this, I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there is inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. The good life, comfort, convenience, and painless life have become necessities that people view as basic rights. If they do not have these, they think something has gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth, for God intends us to grow through trials. And this not only applies for us as Christians, but it applies to the church as well. Are we willing to endure hardship and suffering to advance the gospel? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of the Thessalonian church that they were willing to endure hardship, suffering, and difficulty in order to remain committed to the gospel in their life and in their preaching so that people of all different sorts will come to hear about Jesus Christ and what he has done for them on the cross and his resurrection. And that the Thessalonians remind us through Paul that our concern should be about people. May we be a church that flourishes because we understand the cost that is involved to share the gospel and to live it out in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.